Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. To kick off this week, I've got a little something special for you. A couple somethings, actually. To start off, I'd love to give you the chance to win your very own copy of the movie Pearl on Blu-ray. A24 and Lionsgate welcome you back to Ty West's horrifying world of X with the blood-soaked and unforgettable origin story, Pearl. Mia Goth delivers an incredible performance as the iconic villain, Pearl. I loved her in X, but I have to say I think Pearl is a step above still. Such a great callback to the kind of slasher horror I grew up with. Certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, you can own Pearl now on Blu-ray and digital. Or better yet, why not win your copy? Keep your eyes on our social media throughout the next week. I'll be posting there for your chance to win. Plus, patrons get even more chances to win. So, keep your eyes peeled. And our other treat for this week? I've finally received our special, limited, signed copies of the new Dark Matter Inc. fiction collection, Human Monsters. There are some mind-blowing, disturbing tales in this anthology by some of our favorite authors we've featured here on the show, and many incredible talents we haven't had. 
yet. We've got a couple details to iron out for the giveaway of these bad boys, but our supporters on Patreon will have an extra chance to get their claws on a copy. So, between the Pearl Blu-ray, signed copies of Human Monsters, and one other giveaway next week, which I won't spoil for you yet, being a patron can certainly pay off. Patreon.com slash Tales to Terrify if you're not a member already. And of course, if you just want to enter, keep your eyes on our social media, as I said. Well, it's pretty hard to top off either of those for news, so for this week, I think we'll leave it at that. Let's dig into our fiction. Our first story for the evening comes from Thomas Farr. Thomas Farr is a British writer of fiction and poetry. He enjoys traveling, running, cycling, reading, and writing although he doesn't enjoy writing author bios. His work has appeared, or is forthcoming, in Amphora, Fenacular, Lavina Press, The Dark Door, and elsewhere. He tweets at T-Far Poetry. Children of the Night, join me for Thomas Farr's Hachi Shakusama, a Tales to Terrify original. I've seen one, I said, staring out over the ocean. We were sitting on a rocky breaker at the edge of the bay, one of those little fishing villages along the Kyushu coastline, with tugboats bobbing on the waves and racks of fish and other things scraped from dredges hung up next to market stalls and houses. I heard the sound of sandals slapping against cement as someone passed us by. Nick skimmed a stone across the water. It hopped three times, then sank. Seen one what? he asked. A ghost. I've seen one. He said something in Dutch and reached for another stone. I just looked at him. Sorry, he said. Where? When? In Nagasaki, of all places. I stared at a pair of gulls veering near, gliding out of the blood-white sky and diving and crying loudly. There were a couple of surfers farther down the beach, and I watched them for a while. There was no one else around, except for an elderly fisherman fishing off the back of a boat. The waves were small, slopping off the rocks, receding flatly across the water. Let's hear it then, Nick said. Yeah? Yeah, spill the story. You know, Kagamiya, he shook his head. It's a guest house, not too far from Hotarujaya. To get to it, you have to walk right past this little hillside cemetery and at sunset you can see the spiky silhouettes of all these tilted gravestones, and there's like an almost holy hush to the whole thing. There's a shrine, too, fairly big by the looks of it, although I never went inside. Oh, and a couple of vending machines on the street just opposite. Energy drinks and cigarettes, the usual. So anyway, I've booked a bed in one of the dorms. Only once I get there, the girl in the reception tells me that no... I've got a private room in the annex. 
nobody's trying to charge me anything extra, so I say, sure, okay, private room in the annex it is. I looked at the horizon, the pale sky and frescoed clouds. It was like an oil painting discovered in shades of white, of gray. We were both quiet for a while as the gulls swooped and cried. How long were you in Nagasaki? Nick asked at length. A week or so, I answered. Checked out the Peace Park, the Museum of History, the Dutch Slope too, before you say anything. But what I'd really gone there to see was the island. Gunkanjima? Gunkanjima, Battleship Island in all its empty, eerie glory. And just like that, the memory was so clear I could have reached out and touched it with my hand. The dense warren of abandoned concrete buildings, crumbling factories and derelict apartments, the huge, heavy weight of accumulated time. They take you around on carefully controlled tours. I haven't been, Nick said. Carefully controlled. But at one point, you're allowed to look around the area unsupervised. I released a long, captive breath. So I looked. I wandered the empty streets, past rows of empty doorways. Everything felt and sounded empty. I walked for probably a quarter of a mile in the blistering heat. This was back in August, right, and that whole island was sizzling like a pan. Before I decided to go inside, I paused for a moment and listened to the shouts of the surfers resounding from farther down the beach the sound of sandals scuffing swiftly across stone, the heaving stanzas of sea. This was no longer a considered retelling so much as a reliving, a flutter of memory, a zoetrope of recalled images, the dilapidated courtyard, stacked walkways framing a small square of gray sky, the apartment building waiting, dark and smothering as an ancient mausoleum. The stairwell was blocked, so... I climbed the railings like a man climbing scaffolding. The air was dank and clammy mixed with a tang of salt. It was like a cave mouth swallowing me up. Every doorway I passed was as dark as a tomb. I followed the layers of walkways and connecting footbridges, flicking all these useless light switches and picking my way around piles of debris. I had a pen light and stopped at each door and swept the puny beam over walls and ceilings, I thought about the apartment floor creaking uneasily beneath my feet. The middens of mildewed furniture, the jagged refraction of light off an imploded television screen, and a nigh unto deafening emptiness. I went inside one of the apartments for a mooch around. Nothing much. Old furniture, smashed appliances, a few old family photographs, a rack of sandals, a little Jizo statue wrapped in a moldy towel and shoved in a dresser drawer in the bedroom. By then it was getting on, so I figured I'd best get back to the tour. I was almost out the apartment door when I heard it. A small scuffle. A whisper without words. I glanced back. There was a woman in the bedroom doorway. Filling the bedroom doorway. Nick looked at me. There was something in his eyes. Then they darted away like a pair of fish in a pond. Seriously, I said. She was ducking under the doorframe, pale and thin in a dirty dress, all this long black hair with a floppy hat shading her face, completely drenched as if she'd just crawled out of the tub. Goes without saying, I beat feet. Two shakes of a lamb's tail and I was back at the bottom of the stairwell, running until I couldn't run anymore. 
I stopped in a light well to get my breath, watching behind me all the while. When I was ready to go, I straightened up, and there she was, staring at me from the other side of this high chain-link fence separating the light well from the whole slummy warren of apartments beyond. Head lolling and hair hanging in matted wet strings, her hands gripping the rusty strands of the fence, pressing against and bending it in different directions. Which was more than enough spooky bullshit for me. I got the hell out of there, stat. We watched as the lone fisherman packed up his gear and steered the boat towards the beach, casting in at an old sagging dock. Up close, the boat looked ancient, its boards weathered and warped, dark with tar and patches of green, yet it moved as swiftly as a bird across the water. Best part is, when I finally got back to Kakamiya, I found the little Jizo statue smashed to pieces in my backpack. Damnedest thing, too, because I swear to shit, I don't even remember grabbing it. But what the fuck ever it was, I can tell you now, it wasn't a Jizu statue. No, it wasn't a Jizu statue because Jizu statues weren't shaped like that. A wasp landed in the shadow of my water bottle. I waited until it lifted away and then took a huge gulp of water, wiping my mouth with my knuckles. That night, when I went to the vending machine to get an energy drink, I saw someone standing among the greys on the hillside. Someone tall. Really tall. And as I watched them, I realized they were watching me. Freaky shit. Freak shit in fucking deed. I smiled feebly. I wound up back in my room with the door locked and the coffee table pushed in front of it, sweating on my futon with my trainers on in case something happened in the night that might compel me to flee the annex. The whole time I'd been there, I hadn't seen a single pair of shoes by the door, so as far as I could tell, I had the place to myself. I drifted off and had an awful dream that I really don't want to talk about, and when I woke up, the phone was ringing in the kitchen. I picked up on the fourth ring. Don't ask me why. Just don't. Horror movie logic 101. There was no noise on the other end, and all I could hear was my own heartbeat and the occasional creak of an upstairs floorboard. But the more I listened, the more I felt like someone else was listening back. Then, just like that, the connection was cut and I was standing there in the dark kitchen with a dead receiver pressed to my ear. The floorboards above me were creaking, like a bed in a brothel, and all of a sudden, it was the stairs I could hear complaining. The stairs were in the front hallway, and the hallway connected my room to the kitchen. What was down there? Hell if I know. I climbed out through the kitchen window and slept in the reception room. In the morning, I went back to the annex, and as soon as I opened the door, I was breathing in that same salt tang, and it was like being back on the island again. I flipped the switch, but the lights didn't go on, and darkness filled the hallway. Made it the mouth of a fucking cave. In the end, I got someone from reception to go in and get my stuff. Told them I'd seen a big honking spider and was too scared to go in myself. (laughs) It was only half a lie. Nick threw another stone. This one sank right off the bat. We walked through the village, passing some shops and a shrine and a 7-Eleven and ascending some 10 or 11 eroded stone steps to a little garden clinging to a hillside with bamboo closing off three of its sides. We sat on a low stone bench carved with kanji characters whose meaning I couldn't quite grasp. There was a small wooden shrine with flaked red paint and some earthen pots of salt arranged in front of it. A faint breeze winnowed through now and then, rustling the bamboo leaves and smelling of sea. 
and in it I heard a voice that was not quite a voice, but more like the impression of one, like a mouth too close to a phone receiver. Maybe I'm losing it, I said, listening to someone move behind the bamboo, a slow, dragging footstep. Ants inspected my trainers. Crickets rasped in the shadows. Minutes passed like eternities. Footsteps and creaking floated across the garden. There was the smell of incense and things growing. A pocket of dark, sickly scent. I turned to say something to Nick and he was gone, as if he'd never been. I covered my eyes and listened to the noises of the garden. And when I looked again, my pale bride was coming to me from behind the bamboo. Her cold obsidian eyes shining in the gloom. Her visage waxen, her mouth stretched just about as far as a mouth could go. The salt in the pots began to blacken, and then there was only her. Her damp black hair waterfalling around me, and the breeze creaking and squeaking through the bamboo, and the slack drip and gurgle of water. That was Thomas Farr's Hachi Shakozama, as read by Dennis Robinson. Dennis Robinson is a fellow content creator from the haunted small town of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. When he's not consulting by day, he's one of the creators behind the comedy podcast Botched, a D&D podcast. Found on all of your podcatchers, it's not your average D&D podcast, as they focused more on banter, character interaction, and improv comedy instead of the rules. They even had an H.P. Lovecraft-themed campaign for Season 4, set in 1932 New York City. You can watch their show live, or catch up, over at twitch.tv slash botchedpodcast. And of course, as well as being one of the creators behind Botched, you might have heard me mention that Dennis is also the mastermind behind a graphic novel series about the world's first werewolf. A little mythology, a dash of folklore, and a sprinkling of history, he brings to you Lycan, Solomon's Odyssey. Chapter 2 just released in digital edition after another successful Kickstarter. If you could check out the project, it would mean the world to him. You can find it now at HiveheadStudios.com or LycanBook.com. It's a phenomenal series, and I've honestly been enjoying every frame, so I highly recommend you check it out. Thank you, Dennis. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Our second tale tonight comes from Hope Davies. Hope is 22 and lives in the UK with her parents, her dog, and her thriving colony of sea monkey brethren. You can find her on Twitter at impudent underscore spurl. Listen with me, children of the night, to Hope Davies' The Face We Share, a Tales to Terrify original. The day they moved into the house by the lake, Holly waited in the car while her mother buried all the mirrors in the garden. The drive from the city was long, and Holly's legs cramped in the footwell. She longed to get out and walk around, but her mother had told her no. It was too dangerous, so Holly was left shivering whilst her mother worked. The cold glass of the windscreen fogged white with Holly's breath and she stared into it. As usual, her reflection was fuzzy, the edges smeared like flesh-colored grease. She always looked like that, if she tried to see herself in puddles or the shiny black of a computer screen. She didn't like to look. Instead, she traced a wet, runny heart with her finger and peered out. Outside, her mother worked, her back dipping up and down over a rusty shovel. Under the hood of her green raincoat, she could have been a stranger. 
There was no sign of the frizzy red hair and scattershot freckles shared by the two of them. No sign that they shared the same painful tendency to knock their toe out of its socket. The same favorite cereal. The same fondness for melodramatic reality TV. All that was visible were her mother's pale hands, the right one sliced by a thin white scar. Night drew closer, bringing navy gray skies and a growling wind. Their belongings groaned atop the roof of the car, tilting with the trees. Holly clung to her seat for fear she might roll over. The soft creaking was the only sound until her mother came back to take a mallet out of the boot. Holly watched through fogged-up windows as she raised it, let it fall. The sound of glass shattering wedged itself deep into the quiet. Then her mother came back, led Holly inside, and their life in the house began. They spent that first night on camp beds in the living room. There was furniture in the house left over from when Holly's mother had lived there as a girl, but all the fabrics had spoiled. Damp had gotten in, and the mattresses and walls were thick and slimy with mold. Moths had visited, too, leaving the curtains hanging in tattered shreds. Don't you worry, love, Holly's mother told her, hair still damp from the storm. We'll get this place sorted out in no time at all, and it'll be like the flat, but with more space. You'll see. Holly frowned at her over a mug of instant hot chocolate, steam dampening her cheeks as she said, I like the flat. A draft flickered up from a dour corner. It was warm. Her mother set her own mug down to the side, now empty. Soon as we get the heating sorted, this place will be too. Just think, won't it be nice to be in nature? She wasn't wrong, but still, I don't understand why we had to leave. I've told you before. Her mother's smile slipped. There was a bladed edge beneath. People were getting nosy. You didn't want strangers poking around and going through your things, did you? No, but... Well then, her mother said. Her smile was in place again, as if it had never left. She flicked off the camping light that had been casting the space in its dull white glow. It's good we're here, isn't it? It'll be nice to get a bit of quiet. I suppose, Holly said, darkness gobbling up the unfinished end of her sentence. She set her mug down and crawled under the heavy blankets tucked over the camp bed. It was true that Holly wouldn't miss the noise of the city that it would be nice to have more space than they had in the flat. Life had come with a soundtrack, wailing sirens and the neighbors' arguments, all muffled through cheap plasterboard. We'll have an easier time of it out here, her mother promised. Now go to sleep. Holly did. After that, their first months in the house went toward making the space habitable. Holly's mother went into the nearby town alone and came back with two mattresses, sheets, and new curtains. They worked together, taking down curtains, throwing away rotted linens, and hauling out mattresses. Holly strained under the weight, skinny arms trembling right up to the front door. 
With a final heave, they shoved the mattress outside. Holly stepped back, gasping for breath. Her mother chuckled at that, ruffling Holly's hair. All right, Miss Muscles. Holly just scowled, eliciting yet more laughter from her mother. They hung the new curtains up as a team as well. Where the old ones were dark browns and maroons, the ones Holly's mother had picked out were bright and airy. Draft excluders, shaped like snakes, found homes in front of problematic cracks, keeping out the worst of the cold. And when Holly's mother cajoled the gas company into switching the heating on, the house was finally warm. Over many afternoons, they started to properly unpack. Cardboard boxes moved from car to hallway, then to the cupboards and shelves of their new home. Holly's own room, blank-walled and empty, became host to her collection of posters. Torn from magazines, they were mostly of different animals, none of which Holly had ever seen in real life. There were giraffes with long spotty necks, a smiling koala bear with fuzzy little claws, and a deer with speckled white flanks and curious eyes. When Holly's mother went into town, the hard work of unpacking and cleaning devolved into exploration. The house was full of nooks and crannies, and when Holly stumbled upon one, she couldn't help but search for more. She found a crawl space under the floorboards, and then a plastered-over passageway between her and her mother's bedrooms. What felt like a hundred bookcases stood in front of a hundred hollows, perfect for curling up inside. There was even a priest hole, a tiny room thick with dust, hidden behind a flap in the old wooden staircase. Faced with the prospect of exploring the dark, musty room alone, Holly's courage failed her. When her mother arrived home from town, Holly pounced on her. Guess what I found? Her mother didn't answer straight away, too busy wrangling the multitudinous polyethylene bags in through the door. Belatedly, Holly realized that she had better take some of the bags from her, and the two of them shuffled into the well-lit kitchen. Her mother dumped the bags on the table. Somewhere to keep your socks that isn't just tossed on top of your shoes? Holly watched as her mother dropped a handful of change into the jar above the sink. The scar on her hand flexed, shimmering like the coins. It's way better than that, Holly promised, setting her own bags down. Oh? Her mother questioned. Come see, Holly said, tugging at the sleeve of her mother's warm, cable-knit jumper. Her mother followed, and Holly pulled her to the priest hole, pushing back the panel in the riser of the fourth step from the top. It's a priest hole, Holly explained as her mother poked her head in with a slight frown. Like was on the TV yesterday. It's a break-in waiting to happen is what it is, her mother said, still frowning. That draft is coming from outside. I bet there's an escape tunnel in there, too. She straightened, pulling her head out of the hole as she fixed Holly with a serious look. You're not to go down there, love. You could get hurt. Holly bit her lip and nodded, cowed. Of course it was dangerous. It'd been silly and childish of her to want to explore. Her mother seemed to notice Holly's expression, and her own face softened.
She reached forward, wiping a smudge of dust that had settled on Holly's cheek. How about we finish putting the food away, and then we can get pizza and watch Bake Off? Holly smiled at that. Okay. A week later, when her mother next went out shopping, Holly went to check on the priest hole, driven by curiosity. Her heart sank a little when she found it nailed shut. She would have to be content just knowing it was there. Over the next month, winter crawled into spring, and Holly began to feel as if she had truly settled in. It was different to the city, far from the noise and smell of the thousands of other humans packed as close as they would fit. There were only the two of them here. Every cough echoed, and every breath stood alone, as loud as if you had shouted it. She could hear every shift of her mother's weight, every half-hummed tune in the shower. The reverse was true as well. The walls had ears, and they belonged to her mother. The warmer weather brought with it an explosion of wildlife. Holly spent hours at the lead-lined windows watching. Grass sprung thick and green over the spot where her mother had buried the mirrors all those months ago. Flowers bloomed, more colors than Holly had ever seen in the city. White pinpricks of daisies, drooping clusters of heavy-headed bluebells, and purple foxgloves all lining the path. From the portico, big swaths of honeysuckle branched, growing longer as the daylight did. The other change spring wrought was in Holly's mother. The money she'd saved for them to move had finally run out, meaning she was back to working full-time again. This meant long hours hunched over her laptop, a battered old thing with cracked hinges held together more by duct tape than its original casing. The two of them spent a lot of time cooped up on the kitchen table together, working in stifled silence. Holly wasn't allowed to use the Internet to help with the worksheets her mother printed off for her, so she only had battered textbooks, salvaged from wherever it was things written in the 80s went to die. Holly's work never took her very long. Unlike her mother, who could sit for hours staring at a blank page, Holly didn't like to spend ages puzzling over numbers or letters. After all, there were much more interesting things to do. She either knew the answers, or she got them wrong. As soon as she finished her schoolwork, Holly always went to watch the garden. Butterflies flocked to the space outside the window, drawn by the explosion of wildflowers and the heady spring perfume. Holly could stare at them for hours, right up until it was too dark to see. When her mother brought her a sketch pad and a set of coloring pencils from town, Holly started to draw the butterflies instead of just watching. Soon she amassed a collection of careful insectoid drawings, blossoming with color. Often they flew away before she could finish, and she had to make up her own patterns for the wings. She liked to draw the butterfly wings with the tropical feathers of birds she'd seen on documentaries, or with crumpled, papery textures like they'd been torn from a book. Once she filled the page with spectral moths, their wings flapping like the tattered sails of a ghostly ship sailing through the dark. After she finished, she always gave her drawings to her mother, 
coaxing her away from the laptop to do so. Her mother always smiled when she saw them, eyes crinkling, kinder than they usually were. I liked to draw when I was your age, too, she'd say before tacking them up on the kitchen door. There, the delicate breeze set the papers rustling like they had wings of their own, stuck in place, but always trying to fly away. The butterflies weren't the best thing Holly saw from the window. When they were deep in the thick heat of a summer storm, a deer wandered into the front garden. Its hooves drew tracks in the soupy mud, and Holly stopped flicking through the channels on the TV to stare. She watched silently as it tottered through flower beds and over uneven cobbles. It stopped when it noticed her watching it, ears flaring backwards. The two of them stared at each other, the deer's black eyes meeting Holly's green. The window was thick and cloudy between them. Holly's heart gave an excited kick. The deer bolted. When she told her mother about it later, over TV dinners balanced in their laps, the response felt a little lackluster. There's a herd that lives out here, she said. Did you not see them on the drive up? No. Holly glanced towards her mother, watching as she lifted a fork full of microwaved peas to her mouth. Her gut churned as she considered the question she was planning to ask. Mum? Yes? Her mother's face glowed half-gray in the dark room, lit only by the TV screen as she turned to face Holly. Do you think... Holly felt her will withering on the tip of her tongue, but she forced herself to go on. Do you think we could maybe go for a walk and try to see some? Her mother's frown was immediate and cutting. Holly wished she had followed through with her brief impulse to back down. You know we can't, her mother said, firm. Why? she asked. It's only the forest. There's not even any people. Her mother's jaw was tight. She didn't look at Holly. She didn't say anything. Mom! Go to your room. But... Now! Holly went. That night, she spent a long time staring at a spot of discolored paint on her bedroom wall. It was one of several patches where mirrors used to hang in the house, now bare and imperfect. Her stomach growled. She hadn't gotten to finish her dinner. She got up. The bed was old and the wood strained with every movement as she went to stand by the window. It was dark, and the rain sluiced down the dark glass, moonlight cutting swaths across the tree line. The deer didn't make an appearance that night, but Holly watched for it anyway, attention drifting to her own reflection the pale, blurred lines of her features, the bright smudge of her hair. The back of her throat ached in a way she'd never been able to really put words to. She was frowning, but she didn't know what it looked like. She only knew her mother's frown, could only work backwards to guess at her own expression. 
Lightning splashed bright across the sky, thunder following shortly after. Holly counted the seconds between them in her head, each one a mile. She wondered what it would be like to be there at the spot where they both hit, no time between them at all. She went to bed with her throat still burning, annoyed that she couldn't figure out why. Not long after that, a heavy drought stifled the flowers, and the butterflies stopped visiting. Holly stopped watching the garden and started watching the TV instead. It was the school holidays, so the station switched from decade-old game shows to comedies and teen dramas from America. Curled up on the sofa, she studied the girls on the flickering screen as they sat in front of their big mirrors with their big groups of friends. She found herself transfixed as they did makeup, talked about boys they liked, fixed their hair so that it shone and poofed and curled. Holly's hair never looked like that. Her mother made her keep it in twin braids that ran pin straight down her back, contained, and out of the way. They all had phones, all used the internet, and were all allowed to leave the house. Holly thought about the priest hole for the first time in months, held the thought, then recoiled at the idea of going against her mother's wishes. Holly and her mother were sitting at the kitchen table, working opposite each other, when Holly finally worked up the courage to ask. Mum? Her mother glanced up, supermarket reading glasses slipping down her nose. Yes, love? I was wondering if next year... Next year? Her mother prompted. Holly braced herself to ask. Could I go to the school in town? No. It was crushing. Worse, Holly wasn't brave enough to ask why this time. Holly started to read more often after that. Every couple of weeks, her mother would bring back a big box of books salvaged from a car boot sale at 20 pence apiece. The pages were yellow and sometimes stuck together, but Holly didn't mind. She liked to sit in the big bay windows overlooking the lake, hunting for courage between the pages of stories about vampires and werewolves. One evening, when rain sliced gray curtains across the lake, her attention slipped away from her book and came to settle on the window. This happened often now. Holly would stare and stare, hunting for some little piece of herself in the blurred shapes. It never worked. Instead, her throat would tighten and ache, and not even going back to her book would make it stop. That evening, she caught a shadow at the tree line, just visible from the corner of her eye. It hovered there for several seconds, and she traced the outline. It was the deer. Her heart stuttered, book falling to her lap, forgotten. It left, and Holly made up her mind. She started small at first, still smarting from her conversation with her mother. Whilst her mother was out, Holly opened the linen closet. The bottom was full of all the tools her mother had made use of whilst fixing up the house. 
nails, hammers, even a power drill attached to a black cable, thick with dust. Holly rummaged around until her hand closed around the handle of a stubby screwdriver. A tingle of nervous anticipation shivered across her skin, and she tucked it into her skirt pocket. She didn't use it straight away. Instead, she put it in her box of pencils where they sat gathering dust on the shelf. She practiced breathing deeply until her mother got home, staring at her book but unable to make herself focus on the page. Later that night, her mother came into Holly's room just as she was getting into bed. She paused in the door, surveying the cluttered shelves and the poster-covered walls. Holly twisted her hands into fists under the covers. I was looking for my screwdriver earlier, but I couldn't find it. Her mother's hand was resting on the doorframe, her silvery scar catching the light. You wouldn't happen to know where it is, would you? Holly shook her head quickly. Her hair was still damp from the shower, and the motion spritzed droplets of water across her shoulders. No. She clenched her fists a little tighter, looked at everything except the little box of pencils on the shelf. Did you check the linen closet? First place I looked, her mother said. Oh. Holly swallowed. I don't know, then. Well, let me know if you see it. With that, she turned off Holly's bedroom light, plunging her into darkness. It was getting cold again as they edged into September, and the leaves were browning on the trees. The TV had stopped playing teen dramas nearly a week ago, and Holly had to settle for watching reruns of Four in a Bed. Holly bided her time until her mother's next trip out. A week later, the day came. The morning of the trip, the two of them sat in the bathroom. Holly perched on the edge of the tub whilst her mother tugged her hair into plates. They had finally painted the walls a couple of weeks ago, but the space over the sink yawned wide, a sore marked only by its lack of continued soreness. Remember, her mother said, if anything happens, call my mobile first, okay? Holly nodded. Okay. Her mother tugged sharply at the plate she was working on. Stay still. Sorry. Her mother took a breath that weighed heavy on her shoulders. You know I love you. Yes, Mum. I love you, too. Later, Holly watched her mother leave, perched on the big leather chair by the window. The car sputtered a couple of times in the driveway, but as always, it made it out, disappearing down the road as it wound away from the lake. Holly collapsed back into the chair, pulling her knees in close to her chest and burying her face in them. Her heart pounded as she counted out time in her head, each creak of the old slumbering house making her curl just that little bit smaller. With a few deep breaths and a little patience, she calmed herself enough to move again. 
After all, she wasn't going to be doing anything overtly rebellious. She just wanted to step outside, even if it was only for a moment. She trotted up the stairs, noting the still-boarded-up flap covering the priest hole. In her bedroom, she stood atop a chair, grasping for the box of pencils. Once she had it in hand, she sat on her bed, hands trembling slightly as she slid the lid off, revealing the contents. The screwdriver was gone. Cold seeped slowly and painfully into her gut, wrapped tight around her throat, suffused up into the roof of her mouth. Gone. It was gone. She shuddered, forced herself to breathe again. It must have just fallen down the side. Must have... something. She jumped to her feet with a horrible jerking motion. Heart pounding, breath hot, she inspected each and every crook, every box, every pocket. Nothing. She pressed shaking hands to her mouth. Her mother knew. Her mother knew, and she'd found the screwdriver, and now... Holly didn't know. Stripes of rain splashed against the window, carving slender, dotted tracks. It couldn't touch Holly. Nothing could touch Holly. Not now. Not ever if she stayed here, trapped. She stared at the space where her bedroom mirror should have been, but wasn't. She needed to do this, to know why. When she went outside, would she see the deer again? The screws keeping the priest hole shut were thick and wide, enough that Holly could fit a coin in the grooves. She selected a five-pence piece from the change jar in the kitchen and jammed it into the drive, twisting. It hurt her fingers, leaving little red grooves in her skin, but she kept going until all the screws came free. The flap and the step opened and a breeze escaped, hitting Holly's face with a chill. She took a breath, lungs filling with fresh, cool air. She peered into the dark space, but it was too dark to see much beyond a narrow crack of light near ground level. Swallowing her fear, she turned round to go down the hole, feet first. She had to wriggle a bit, and a splinter scraped her belly where her blouse rode up. But she made it through, dropping to the floor with a thud. The space was musty from what was probably centuries of neglect, floorboards soft with damp. She sneezed, sending motes of dust swirling through the air, kept sneezing until she pulled her blouse up to cover her nose and mouth. She picked her way through the dark, making sure not to trip on anything. She reached the crack of light. It was a low door, big enough only to crawl through a hard shove, and it swung open. Holly dropped to her knees, crawling out into a patch of wilted pink flowers, dust and dead things clinging to her as she emerged from the house. Trembling, she got to her feet. It wasn't raining anymore, but everything was still a little damp. She stood under an autumnal sun, 
blotted pale and small behind banks of thick gray clouds pierced by a single patch of light. Everywhere dead petals sprouted from the ground like papery prunes. Mixed with the leaf mulch, hiding all varieties of horrible crawling things. A thrill curled through Holly's gut. She was outside, and her cheeks ached with the resultant grin. But then, something else caught her eye. A raised mound a little ways away, covered in patchy, ill-looking grass. Holly felt her face sagging. There lay something darker and more pernicious than the joy she felt at the touch of fresh air. It had been there all along, waiting for the moment it might be satisfied. A hunger that grew and grew, insatiable and dark. Holly wanted to know, more than anything else, what she would see when she looked in the mirror. And the answer was right there. Her body felt several sizes too big as she walked over, legs cartoonish and hollow, stripped to the barest bone and tendon. Wind had smoothed down the ugliest edges of the mound, the parts that would have made it clear what she was looking for. She dropped to her knees, patting with bare hands at the dirt. She didn't have anything to dig with. Her mother would be away for another few hours. She always was when she went to the supermarket in town. Holly stood back up and cast her eye around the garden. After several minutes of searching, she found a bit of slate, knocked loose by the wind. It wasn't perfect, but it would serve. She didn't even have to dig as deep as her mother had just until she found the first broken shard. The first cleave of slate and dirt was the toughest. The ground was damp, and soil spilled over her hands, sticking and itching where it touched. Holly's knees were bare under her skirt, and the grass rubbed them raw and green. After that first layer, each till of the slate seemed to deposit more dirt in the hole than it yielded. Frustrated, Holly began to scoop the soil away with nothing but pale, chilly fingers. Rain fell again, a fine mist that stuck flyaways to Holly's face, soaking her clothes and lining her skin with goosebumps. The cold made her work faster. Numb fingers struggled to grip handfuls of mud, face flushed with a laboring heat. She was having to lean in to dig now, closer. So close. Her heart twisted, breath strained with both exertion and dread. Her fingers glanced across something sharp and cool. Sharp pain spilled over her hand. She pulled it free. Blood welled from a cut. She'd sliced open the side of her hand. Blood swelled, dripped, mixed with the streaks of mud on her hands. It was as if her heart was afraid to beat, shot through with icy crystals of dread. She pulled the little piece of glass out of the mud, gripped it between her thumb and index finger, gently wiped away the dirt on the hem of her skirt, held it, reverent in stiff fingers, 
up to her eyes. She blinked. Framed in the jagged two-inch shard was a face far more familiar to Holly than her own. Crow's feet around green eyes, lips thin and painted, hair pulled into childlike plaits, uneven because Holly could never get them straight. Her mother's eyes stared back at her. Her own eyes, Holly realized with awful, sick dread. She dropped the mirror. She screamed. Holly drove down the twisting road towards the little house by the lake, sleet spattering the windshield, scraping hard against the flimsy wipers. She pulled up, wheels scuffed on bark and brackish dirt. In the back seat, her daughter was staring in wonder. She'd love the house. It was full of cubbies and passages cut into walls, just big enough for someone her daughter's size to crawl through. Holly had loved it when she was a girl. Loved it now, in a sense. Not yet, though. Wait here, she told her daughter before jamming her feet in a pair of black Dunlop wellies and moving to the back of the car, taking out a dented shovel gouged with rust. And then she started to dig. It was for the best. Holly would do better than her own mother had. She would do more. She would be kind and loving, but at the same time, she would keep her daughter safe. Her daughter would never find out about the truth held by the mirrors. Holly wouldn't let her. Later, when the hole was deep as a grave, it was time to go inside. She wandered room to room, screwdriver in hand, tracking down each and every mirror, not daring to look. She dragged them all outside. She was sweating under her raincoat as she pushed each one into the hole. They glowed, capturing light, holding it. She held the last one tight, a lacquered hand mirror etched with beads of meadowsweet. From the corner of her eye, movement caught her attention. A brief shift in the forest beyond. She squinted, trying to catch sight through the rain. And then she saw it. A lone deer had wandered to the edge of the tree line, and it was watching her closely. Her breath caught in her chest. There was no glass between them this time. She wanted to reach out, to touch it. But as soon as it saw that its gaze had been returned, it was gone, back into the forest leaving her alone. She gripped the hand mirror tighter, staring at the spot where the deer had been. She glanced down, the silvery scar on the side of her hand caught the light and shone. The mirror tilted, and for a moment she thought she might have caught sight of a pair of eyes far younger than her own. She threw it into the pit with the others. Mallet met glass. She took her daughter inside.
That was Hope Davies' The Face We Share, as read by Nicole Swanson. Nicole Swanson is an actor and producer from Augusta, Georgia, who has discovered she loves hiding away in her closet and telling stories to her loyal companion, Blackjack the Studio Dog. An occupational therapist in the Georgia Corrections System, when not narrating, Nicole enjoys a good cup of coffee while sitting on her porch swing and listening to the rain on a dark and stormy night. Discover more of Nicole's adventures at NicoleSwansonVO.com Thank you, Nicole. Well, children of the night, the hour is late and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Paul Belcher, Amanda Gottfried, and Kathy Robinson, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we summon fresh horrors with more Tales to Terrify. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 